privilege to be able to, to introduce and actually publicly congratulate Trish, who recently joined the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences as a professor in primary care um, from Queen Mary University in January. So having re read um, Trish's paper recently in the, in the BMJ, you've actually convinced me on the on the, uh, the campaign for real EBM. When I asked Trish if I could join the campaign, she said, yeah, there's actually no, if I join the team. She said, well, there is no team, so of course. And it's got, I'm, I'm hoping tonight that Trish will convince you to become part of the Years No team and join the campaign for real EBM. Thank you. It's amazing, actually, because, um, see, it 1985, I came to Oxford for the very first EBM workshop. Maybe it was, no, not 85, wait a minute, well, no. After, hang on, it was when one of my kids was born. When would it have been? 90, no, 95? 95, 1995. Yeah, they were small. I remember they were small. They weren't, they'd been born. Um, so that, that's like 20 years. That's, that's, it's a whole generation. It's quite amazing. And Oxford and, Oxford and evidence-based medicine have, have got a bit of a history. But, you know, 20 years... It's like one of those marriages, you know? Has anyone done 20 years of a marriage? I mean, you know, I've done nearly 30 years, you know, and after 20 years, you think, oh, God, is it going to be like this forever, right? No, it's fine, it's fine. But seriously, EBM's been going quite a long time. And I think, maybe not now, tonight, but about now in the history of EBM, it's time to really take a hard think you know, it, has it got into a rut? Is it, has it really, it, it's got to move on, I think. EPM's got to move on. That, that's my view. Do you, who, who agrees with that? Some, okay. I mean, you're a completely self-selecting sample because if you didn't think that, you probably wouldn't be here. You've probably gone home. All right, all right, all right. So, firstly, yeah, look, thanks for inviting me. But also, people associate, well, you know, like that paper in the, in the BMJ, people say that's Trish's paper. There's 15 authors? Jeremy, point, say hello, Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy was a co-author on that. You know, he's, um, and, and is anyone else who was a co-author that is here? No. Uh, it, it's really important. This, this isn't me. This, I know Dave Sackett, who's kind of master of the cliche, used to say, I'm a symptom, not a cause. And he said, well, I'm not evidence-based medicine. You know, EBM was going to happen in you know, sometime between sort of mid-1980 and, and, you know, late 1990s, it was going to happen. And, and Sackett always used to say, look, I'm a symptom of it. I, I was somebody who was in the right place at the right time and wrote the right book and all the rest of it. Um, and in a way, I suppose, the, the campaign for real EBM is much, it isn't just me, the paper wasn't just me, the, this was stuff that was happening. And so genuinely, you know, the stuff that I'm going to talk about today is it, I'm the mouthpiece of stuff that's been going on all over the place. All right, look, you've had enough of me. Real case. You've done four days out of five on your basic EBM course, your EBM 101. This should be dead easy. Talk to your neighbour and give me some questions that you might then go and search the literature for. So what have you got? What questions have you got that would impress Carl Hennigan on... You don't care about impressing Carl, did you say? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> we don't know what would impress him, but... Oh, you don't know what... Go on, tell us. Um, we think that, the, um, that we should 
ask the patient what's important to her. Right. As for, like prioritize her symptoms. Mm -hmm. And we should also look at some of the interactions in those uh, drugs that she's being prescribed. Mm -hmm. To me, she's on um, too many meds. Okay. Okay, so, so what, is, what is this patient? You want to start off and say, well, the patient's priorities, and you're also, whoa, that's a big, long list. How many of you are clinicians? You know, doctors, nurses, pharmacists? Yeah, most of you. No, two-thirds of you. Okay, question, other questions? Yeah. So what's the evidence behind taking aspirin and clopidogrel at the same time? Okay, what's the evidence? So zoom in on one of those medications and say... Hang on a minute, she needs to be on both of these. Who invented that combination drug? Might she be better off on just one of those? What's the added benefit for putting two of them in together? Yeah. I'd ask her, how does she feel unwell? Because then you can focus in. How does she feel unwell? You want more detail, you want more clinical detail on just you feel unwell. You'd go, you know, so if she says, look, I'm, I'm, I've got ringing in my ears, you might be able to identify which of the drugs was giving you ringing, whatever. Yep, yep. Okay, so now you're thinking, wait a minute, okay, so she's on, she's got diabetes and you've been given the drug list, but you're going off-piste and you're going to say, wait, I'm going to do lifestyle measures. We're not just going to look at the drug list. Yep. So can you give me a question about exercise or diet? Can you frame it in that, you know, ask a focused question way that I'm sure you've been taught? In patients with type 2 diabetes, comma, go on. Yeah, okay. Okay. So what what is the benefits versus the harms of regular exercise versus metformin in controlling diabetes? That kind of thing. Okay. So how many, well, potentially how many questions are going to come out of this? An infinite amount, but certainly hundreds, yeah. I mean, I, I came up with those. I mean, yours are no better or worse than the ones that are probably better than these, but... Um, these are the ones that I started to try and unpack. I mean, the, the, interestingly, I didn't come up with the one of, I, I've rather zoomed in on the drugs. And actually, I totally agree. We need another thing here about non-drug treatments. And I'm not giving you this example as a kind of perfectly well-worked-up example of, of EBM done brilliantly by a clever professor at all. This is just kind of me, saw that patient once in clinic and, you know, used it as an example. The point I'm trying to make here is this kind of patient is absolutely standard. I did a, a morning surgery this morning, and I must have seen three people with an equivalent package to Mrs. Patel, one of whom had also been beaten up. You know, that's just this morning. Um, I didn't see very many people, for example, who had got a pure post-stroke. Can, can you talk about my blood pressure treatment, doctor? or my blood thinning treatment. I didn't see any of those. I saw people with carrier bags full of medication, all that kind of thing. And, and this is something that EBM wasn't primarily designed to address. Why not? Can't you help me give the lecture? It would be much more interesting. Go on. Both of the women behind you have got their hands up like this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Was life simpler 20 years ago? No, So there was still polypharmacy then. Maybe there's a bit more of it now. Certainly, I'm going to, some of the slides I'm going to show you after suggest that certain people think there's more polypharmacy now. 
So come on, let's think about the... Um, has anyone ever done a drug trial? Yes, okay, so EBM was designed for focused questions. Um, a multimorbidity doesn't lend itself to focus. I love that. That's really good. Oh, we've caught it on the podcast, haven't we? So we can kind of <laughs> quote it. That's very good. <laughs> I should say, you know, as elicited from the audience by Professor Greenhouse, this clever comment or something, no, that's serious, really good. But you're right. I think that's, but I think my colleague here is right as well that multimorbidity isn't a new thing. Um, maybe it's got worse. Uh, go on. Right. Come on, let's, let's, yeah, let's explore a bit more. Put your hand in the air if you've ever been involved in a drug trial as someone who either writes the grant application or enters people into the trial or does any of that researchy type stuff, whether you've been an administrator or Jeremy's been in it. Come on, and who else? All my mates from my department. What about people who are not? Yeah, go on. What was your experience of a drug trial? Perfect. Come on, tell us how it's done. Uh, well, there's a very uh, strict list of injuries and exclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. Generally, um, comorbidity or uh, anything like that, it, you, you just can't take part. So and so, so where, where'd you get your money from? Uh, yeah, HR, HCA, NLC, anywhere. Anywhere, okay. <laughs> Okay, now look, I'm doing a bit of work with the um, HTA people at the moment. The, you know, the sort of, some of the top brass at the HTA, we're doing a little fun piece of work, never mind what it is, but we spend a long time kind of hanging out on trains together. You learn, overhearing, um, how the HTA works. Guess what the HTA does for every bit of government money that they are, you know, it's Department of Health money. What do they do, first of all? The very first thing they have to do, keep Sally Davis happy or whatever, and she Sally's a goodie really a very goodie but you know they ask a focused question all of them you know MRC when did you last apply for MRC money and be successful when you didn't have a focused question something fundamentally flawed about the whole research machinery isn't there but EBM is predicated on focused questions somebody said to me once that research is the art of finding precise answers to simple questions. It's, it's, it's deeply problematic, isn't it, guys? Because actually, you know, it's not helping. The, the very people, look, have another look at Mrs. Patel again. You know, if we can't help people like this lady, we've got problems, haven't we? I mean, the, you know, the, these are people who are very needy, very vulnerable, etc. All right, you know about, you've all been given that paper, have you been given that paper? Look, it's free. I mean, I paid £3,000 to make this open access. Okay, guys, so get on, get on to the BMJ website. Um, you, you must, and, and tweet about it, because it's already the most tweeted about paper that was published in the BMJ in, in the whole of 2014. We, we, did, we did good stuff on social media. Um, all right, now I'm going to give them... Who's, who's read it? Be honest. Okay, so the rest of this lecture is all about persuading you to go and read it. Um, I'm now going to work up to telling you how we, how we came to write that paper and how many times the BMJ rejected it before they agreed to publish it. So who has seen that sentence before? Put your hand up. You've seen that sentence before. Okay, so about half of you. <coughs> EBM is the conscientious, judicious and explicit use of current best evidence making decisions about the care of individual patients. Why is, it, why is that rubbish? 
Why is that complete and utter rubbish, apart from the picture of motherhood and apple pie on the bottom, which really tells you... I mean, it's flannel, isn't it? Don't you think? Disagree with me. Come on. It's not about individual patients, is it? I mean, it's, everything it's based on is based on group, not groups of patients, oh. not individuals. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, you're right. No, it's the other bit. I was kind of... Um, the other half of the sentence I was taking issue with, but yeah, the, the whole of the sentence is actually pretty flawed. <laughs> <laughs> I think as bright as I am, I can't possibly know everything. Okay. And but so therefore I'm not going to know all the best evidence. Oh, okay. So it's a council of perfection. So it's like... Um, Winnicott, who said, look, good, don't read all these good parenting books. He wrote this book about good enough mothering. And if today he would have wrote good enough fathering as well. That actually, you don't need to be a perfect parent. You just need to be a good enough parent. And the rest of it is up to the child, isn't it, David? Don't you see? Yeah, you see. Um, but, <laughs> well, I think it's rubbish because it doesn't say anything. Because it's not telling us what EBM is at all. It doesn't define what current best evidence is. And all this kind of rhetoric, conscientious, judicious, all that's saying is you're, doing, you know, you're trying hard, you're trying your best. But what it's doing rhetorically is associating a very particular methodology and approach with words that you couldn't possibly disagree with. Because it's saying if you don't buy into this dirty great hierarchy here, Actually, you're not being conscientious, judicious, or anything, you know, all these lovely things that we all want to be, because we wouldn't want to be non-conscientious, non-judicious, all the rest of it. So I think it's a very clever piece of um, rhetoric, and it is the most highly cited sentence that's ever been published in the BMJ. Um, so what is EBM, then, if it's not that? Well, I think it's about, and Anna Donald and I wrote another book, or was it a book chapter or something? We said, we can't use that definition, we've got to improve on it. And we said, EBM, then, a few years ago, is the, the use of mathematical estimates of the probability of benefit and the probability of harm derived from population samples to inform decision-making when discussing decisions with individual patients. Now, Mike Kelly would say, yeah, but it's also about decisions about populations because you can have evidence-based public health and say things like should we have minimum alcohol pricing and use EBM for that as well. So the about individual patients, you could argue that all day, but the bit I think is wrong with that is it doesn't say, it doesn't make explicit that this is about epidemiology. Now, that I think is highly problematic because everything about EBM has been driven by the paradigm of epidemiology. It is about sampling. So you have a population, you take a statistical sample, you then do an experiment on it, or perhaps you just observe it, depending on whether you're cohort or, or, or trial or whatever, and you then get some numbers out, and you then put a confidence in the world around those numbers. You then program it into a decision support tool, possibly, or put it into a book, and then when, when you ask these questions, so I go back, sorry, I'm going to go back and forth. For example, in Asian women over 80 with condition X, what is the benefit of drug Y and what are the harms? You want numbers, don't you? You don't just want, well, it's quite good. Do you see what I mean? So what we're talking about 
It's the hierarchy of evidence. You know, do you, you know what this is, don't you? Have they? Is that old now? Do they? Do the Cochrane Collaboration still use this logo? Because I think it's it's been, hasn't it been revamped or something? Yeah, I have. But they're still using that, that still picture. They're still using that picture. Yeah. Okay. So you know, this is your, you know, this is individual trial one, two, three, four, five, six. I can't remember what what it was about. And then that's your grand mean. And the idea is, yeah, you know, you've increased the significance. It's all about big numbers and, and small confidence intervals. Um, and it's also about a methodological hierarchy. Method drives the quality assessment. Okay, so this method is higher quality than that method. It's not about theory. And you have people from outside epidemiology, they say it's completely different. Now, of course, then what they did was they said, Ah, oh, yeah, but we also want to find out the patient's values and preferences. And actually, the first comment that came from you people, splendid, when I asked her, you know, what, are, what questions you're going to ask about Mrs. Patel, is what are her preferences? What are her desires? What, what, in what way is she sick, etc.? Brilliant. Great. Because you're, you're contemporary EBM people. You're not from 20 years ago. So EBM has now incorporated the idea that the patient's values, preferences, priorities should influence the way you apply epidemiology but they're still pretty fixated on this now that's not because i mean i don't believe that a non-randomized trial is better than a randomized trial i absolutely accept that within epidemiology you know that's okay but what i'm saying is outside epidemiology there's all sorts of other things that we haven't yet taken account of okay so and, and that's probably because I've been trained in social sciences. I'm not really a doctor. I mean, I am a doctor, but in my, in my head, the paradigm I go for is, is much more around organisational sociology or, you know, something that actually isn't sitting in epidemiology. So I was getting into an argument with Carl. So this is way back in 2013. Um, we deleted some of these, but I challenged Carl. This all happened on Twitter. Who's on Twitter? You're on Twitter. Oh, come on, the rest of you. Look, it's great. It's really great. I've got two PhD students, probably two of the best PhD students I've ever had, that came to me via Twitter. Um, I've got two grants that came to me by, via Twitter. I had breakfast the other day with the master of an Oxford college um, with a research program that we started growing on Twitter. Don't tell me it's about exchanging pictures of kittens. This is, this is, you want to get into academia, get into Twitter. Um, so I chucked out a few comments to Carl saying, I didn't say, be careful about this, I didn't say EBM is rubbish, right? I didn't say that. And that some of the people have reframed that. What I said was, there are two ways of applying EBM. One is real EBM and one is rubbish EBM, okay? Real EBM, real EBM is what we want because actually it is a good idea to have robust randomised trial evidence, blah, blah, blah. Look, I've been ill. He told you I was ill. He told you I've been ill. Yeah, no, 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 I'm really ill. I had um, two slipped discs and I had to um, make a decision about spinal surgery. You know, tiger country, you know, like go in there past your carotid artery and all that kind of thing and kind of fiddle around your spinal cord type stuff. I had to decide whether or not to have major, major drilling around that area or whether to leave it. I wanted randomised trials. So I'm not opposed to randomised trials. You know, I was desperate with those randomised trials. Um, and actually, when, I, when you come to Evidence Live, I'm going to be talking about the, the, those kind of personal decisions. 
so I wasn't, I'm not opposed to UBM, but what I was saying was sometimes when you apply epidemiology in decision-making with and about individual patients, it becomes rubbish, it becomes absurd, it becomes completely crazy. Now what I want you to do is talk to each other and think about an example of rubbish EBM. When is EBM rubbish? Anyone got a good example? Anyone heard a good example from the person sitting next to him? Do you want more time? Give, me, give us a good example of rubbish EBM. Politics generally. Go on. Policies. Oh, oh, policies. Um, I can see. I can see Nick um, getting very interested here. Nick, Nick's policymaker, so. <laughs> or ex-policymaker, now PhD student. Right. Come on. One example of a policy that is rubbish. EBM. Great, great example. Great general example. Now I want a specific example of a policy that is rubbish. EBM. Don't worry if you don't know, because Nick will help us. He'll, he's got armloads of them. Come on, for those, because uh, there may be some people from outside the UK who don't know that example. So just, just in 140 characters, what are they? I don't tweet, but um, I think oh, wish you the, did. It's 40. Okay, so just for the podcast, I'm going to repeat that. So it's 40 year olds. From, I mean, who's it? Jesse's 40. Where's Jesse? You're going to get one. Yay! So, Jesse, sorry, I hope that, well, no, because you had a cake with 40 on it. It's not a secret, is it? Okay, so you are going to very soon going to get that letter from your GP. Anyone up to the age of 70? Apparently, after you're 70, you, nobody cares about you. Nobody wants to check your health anyway. But before, between 40 and 70, and it's an invitation to go along to your GP and have a health check which is going to involve assessing your risk score for various things and so they say oh, you know are you too fat you smoke um you have what, what's your cholesterol whatever it might be and then they're going to say right you know you better sort your life out you know give up the cancer suit, all that kind of thing so what that is presented as evidence-based and yet there have been no randomized controlled trials of that um, there have been no serious regional pilots of it. So in what way is it evidence-based and why has it come up in this lecture? I agree with you, I think it is an example of rubbish EBM, but why are we saying that's EBM at all? When, when it's, you know... Are individual aspects of that, do they have an EBM based behind it? So if you catch someone who smokes early... Okay, so some components of the intervention, a, a, a speculative intervention that might follow from the health check. So you might say, well, look, if we've you know, put overweight people on diets and they successfully lose weight, they're less likely to get diabetes, something like that. We give them the intensive support. So, so, of course, the first thing we have to do is catch them. You know, you've, got to, you've got to bring them in. But it's a kind of leap, isn't it? It's a leap. But the reason why it's a brilliant example is that it is being touted by politicians as being based on evidence. And the de you know, definition of evidence by a politician is what support, you know, whatever written thing, written text, supports what they're going to do, or indeed spoken word. I, I, I was once observed by someone 
with evidence. I went into a big committee meeting and um, you know, board meeting of a health authority and I had various different types of evidence and I had um, you know, summaries and I had Cochrane reviews. I wanted to see which of the evidence that the board was interested in. That was the whole point of the research. And then at the end of it, I asked the person who was, had been watching me, which, which evidence do you think they were most interested in? And she said, Trish, you were the evidence. You are the evidence. You are the expert. That's why they invited you. They didn't even look at what you put on the table. So <laughs> actually, the evidence that supports health chase was probably some expert that came and got lunched, you know, or had breakfast with the Camerons or whatever. Okay, so another example of rubbish. So, so evidence that a policy that is not based on epidemiological evidence, but which the politicians say it is evidence-based, that's a very good example of rubbish EBM. And it's what we called appropriation of the evidence-based kite mark by government. In fact, I think I initially called it bastardisation, but I thought, well, Ben, you use that word because it might upset people, but you know what I mean. It's actually it's quite good because they... Anyway, another example. Different type of example, different class of example of rubbish EBM. Um, GP checks for Alzheimer's, the incentives. Okay, same kind of thing. Yeah. The, 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 the GP checks for dementia. But I'd say it's it, absolutely brilliant example, but it's the same class of example. I mean, a totally different example. Has anyone ever experienced what they believe to be rubbish EBM? Sorry, I didn't see you, Jim. Go on. The statinization of everyone over 50. Yeah. The statinization of everyone over 50. Now, what, what, where's the, what's that, you know, where'd that come from? It's rubbish because it, although it's based on allegedly good evidence, which is that is accepted, yep. the number to treat is very, very high. Ah, so yes. You're not, you're, you're okay. Yeah. A, few will, a few will benefit, and in addition to that, because no one understands the probabilities, patients don't know that, and so if they did know it, they probably yeah. wouldn't take it. So do you all know this example, the idea that everybody over 50 should be on a statin? Okay. Now, this actually doesn't come from politicians. This comes from academics. It's shocking, but particularly epidemiologists. <laughs> and in fact, it gets worse because... Um, Nick Wald, who I used to work with, uh, who's an extremely um, accomplished epidemiologist, you know, I mean, he's got a knighthood for being a very good epidemiologist. And he did all that down screening and he saved lots of lives and all the rest of it. He's come up with this thing called the polypill, which contains a statin and a bit of antihypertensive and a bit of something else, probably, is it folic acid? I can't remember, but it's a combination of all these drugs. And he has written many editorials saying everyone over 50 should take the polypill fixed dose combination of all these different things a little bit you know it's a bit more than homeopathy and why does he say that because if the population over 50 took that drug the population would live longer and i've sat and had it out with nick wald saying nick i as an individual would not benefit from this or the chances of me benefiting are vastly um, less than the chances of me being harmed. And he says, yes, but if the population took the polypill, um, the population would live longer. Therefore, everyone should take the polypill. So it's, so it's reasoning from the population to the individual. And that's, I mean, epidemiologists never see patients. I mean, they should. I said to him, come and sit in my clinic and I'll show you individualized decision making. But why else? Actually, the polypill example is another very good example. Guess who's got shares in the polypill? Yeah, 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 really. All right, look, 
when we all got together, so about, I don't know how many of us were there, Jeremy, 20? Um, we all got together in one of the Oxford colleges, as you do, you know, for this sort of thing. And we went around the table. This is the first evening of, of, of a workshop that we held to talk about this real EBM versus rubbish EBM. And the first thing to say, we, um, I mean, look at this bottom one, first of all, our own Janus identities. None of us were anti-EBM. I mean, some people were, had published articles saying EBM's gone a bit far, it's got a bit above itself. And others of us had published articles saying, look, we need more EBM, this is, this is what's going to save the world. But really, we were all convinced of EBM's benefits in, in its place, but we were very wary of its potential harms. Um, and actually, that first evening, I mean, Jeremy was there. It was quite moving because the first story that people told, that one of the um, people around that table told, is the leading professor of evidence-based medicine, started off with a story about how his sister had just died of lung cancer, despite never having been a smoker, despite the best evidence-based care, and all that kind of thing. The second class of what we subsequently sort of labelled as rubbish EBM wrote the paper about was this generation of doctors who engage very defensively rather than critically with evidence-based guidelines. Who's seen that? Who's found themselves doing it? I mean, I've done it before, thinking, yeah, that's what guidelines say. I better do it. Don't want to get sued. Don't want to get told off by my boss. Don't want, you know, whatever. Um, and I think we all know that guidelines are there to be broken. And Dave Sackett would be the first person to say these are guidelines. They're not protocols. You know, not, you know, you shouldn't be driven by them. Nevertheless, we are becoming, we managerialize ourselves. Um, rubbish EPA. Have you ever looked up a Cochrane review in the middle of a, a, a clinic? I mean, you know, I tried to do it this morning. Just get some great reams and reams of ifs and buts, and you want a decision for the patient. Suddenly, the evidence mountain is getting higher. It's getting worse and worse. It's getting harder and harder to get the bit of evidence you need. Um, Cochrane reviews. Oh, dear. Last, last year at the Cochrane Review, at the Cochrane Collaboration, I gave a keynote. It was um, entitled, Why Are Cochrane Reviews So Boring? Um, and, and Martin Buxton, Buxton? Burton. Burton. Martin Burton is worried about that too. That's why he asked me to give the lecture. You know, there's something about that process of, of, of lining everything up and doing your searches and making everything, you know, getting down, stripping it all the way to that focused question. Suddenly you've taken the whole meaning out of it. You really have. You've taken the, the, the texture, everything that, I don't know. That's why it's so much nicer to read an editorial than it is to re read a Cochrane review. We're going to be doing something about this, actually. I'm going to... Um, Vienna, is it? Some nice place in October to, to, to get people talking about this. Because I don't know what the answer is, because the Cochrane Review is the kind of pinnacle of epidemiology. Um, and then we talked about appropriation, commercialization, the EBM brand. This is evidence-based, and it's not evidence-based at all. Um, shared decision-making. You know, again, you all were very keen on that. We've got to make sure we get the patient's priorities. But hang on. We've been talking about shared decision-making for 20 years. We still don't do it. I don't think I did it once this morning in seeing it. Oh, no, I kind of tried to. But if you'd videoed me and really said, come on, is that decision really shared? It wasn't really. It was sort of me being kind of paternalistic and trying to work out what the patient would have wanted if I'd had time to ask them sort of thing. And, and I get good ticks in those this is a nice doctor questionnaires. You know, I'm not, I'm not horrible or anything like that. Um, government interference in professional practice, you've got that. 
But then all this stuff, this bottom one, this was Iona Heath brought this up and she writes beautifully about it. Hang on a minute, are we, are we supposed to be prolonging life at all costs? Is that what the deal is? Is that what the deal is now? I'm giving a lecture on Saturday at, at University College about this legacy of John Radcliffe, about some of the research I'm doing in elderly people with multimorbidity. And, and, and we studied people who were, you know, in the old days they would have died of their stroke ages ago, but now they haven't. They're sort of strung out. And, you know, we managed to stop people dying, but they're leading miserable lives. And I've already said, you know, to my kids and my husband, listen, you know, when I get to that stage, you know, just sort of weigh my feet down, chuck me in one of those beautiful lakes in the lake district or something like that. Don't, don't kind of, I don't want to live forever. I don't, I really don't. Once I, you know, I'll get to about 80 and that'll be fine. Maybe 90, I don't know. Um, and then this, this lack of usability. So that was all the stuff about when we, we had an initial brainstorm about rubbish EBM, you know, what is it? Um, so when they finally published our paper after the BNJ had rejected it three times for being not of interest to anybody, um, they did this poll about is EBM broken? And it was, you know, the, the, the tightest decision, because you know they put a poll up and it's either, you know, 80% one way or 20% the other way. Um, but this, people were evenly split. And I don't know which way I voted. And it's only recently I've realized that's the wrong question. We were never saying that EBM was broken. We were saying that in certain specific decisions, EBM can be used well or badly, appropriately or inappropriately, rhetorically, instrumentally, or to underpin an appropriate decision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. You've got to get layman. Is layman talking on this course? Because he ought to be. Richard Lehman talking on this one? Oh, he does this really great talk, but since I've, with his full consent and backing, I nicked his slides because he gave this brilliant talk. This is Mrs. Patel, if you like. He's got a really nice argument about heart failure. It doesn't matter what it is because you can pick anything, but he's got this nicely worked up. And he's got this, um, I'll tell you, because I think I've got the slides sort of packed out here. Someone's already said this. In real life, patients with heart failure are really old. I had a case this morning. There was a bloke who was 91 who was being referred for an echo um, for, you know, to look at how his heart failure was getting on. Um, men and women equal. Half have got preserved left ventricular ejection fraction. In other words, not, you know, heart isn't that bad. And they almost all have comorbidity. Almost all of them. bloke this morning did. But, but these landmark trials have picked men who are not very old who've been recruited, the inclusion criteria, and this is our clinical trials manager, you've got to have reduced left ventricular ejection fraction um, and you can't have comorbidity. As a result, all that evidence that we're using to treat heart failure actually doesn't apply to the patient in front of you. This is a big problem. But also, the endpoints in heart failure trials, I'm not going to read that out, um, the patient's priorities, you know, and you came up with this. What are Mrs. Patel's priorities? In what way does she feel ill? Um, actually, most people with heart failure would be prepared to trade better function for shorter life. End-stage renal failure. We evaluated a renal um, uh, quality improvement program once, and we had people with end-stage renal failure. And one of the things that the doctors wanted was to, they said that sometimes people on dialysis just stop coming. How can we... How can we stop them doing that? How can we make them keep coming for their dialysis? And they called it engagement. We went along and interviewed the patients. They were absolutely clear. 
this, this, is being, this is worse than being dead. I would rather just chuck it in. I know that I've got a few months in end-stage renal failure. Please could I have some palliative care? You know, but the consultants felt that they were failing the patients. So, you know, let's think about that. And then this is what happened. This is why a lot of patients become polypharmic. And I've had correspondence with my own mother's GP. Do you realise she's now on, you know, 18 different medications? She would like to stop the following. <laughs> um, because the trials, the trialists are there to, you know, get a statistically significant difference. So huge numbers of patients entered into the trials because the more patients you enter into, the more likely you are to have something statistically significant. That doesn't mean it's clinically significant. Of course it doesn't. Um, and so you get this up titration of dosage and you've all done it. If, you, if your doctor and patient comes in and you say, oh, look, let's give you a little bit more of that, a little bit more of that. And then you get the, the Mrs. Patel um, scenario. So what Richard was saying was that this is a great example of maximally disruptive medicine. And again, you can see how trials that were done to the best level of methodological robustness with strict inclusion, all that kind of thing, have somehow led to a situation that none of us would want to be in or want our grandmother in or whatever. And that's what I mean. Now, it doesn't mean that EBM is rubbish. Do you see what I mean? It doesn't mean that at all, but it does mean we have to think a bit harder about the design of clinical trials, the application of evidence, etc. All right, so really, BM. Well, no, I was going to tell you, I was going to ask you, did you read that? You shouldn't have read it. Come on, talk to each other about what really BM is then. Because there's about seven or eight points that we made. How can, you, how can we make EBM real? Okay, now, because I already showed you that. <laughs> this should be pretty straightforward. There's, nobody disputes the top one, hey? But actually, that word ethical is really important. Because, and this is where somebody who's only ever worked in epidemiology may not quite get it, okay? Because, you know, for them, ethics is about the ethics of consenting to trials and all that kind of thing. But what I mean by ethical care, medicine, and I speak now as a GP, I speak now as someone who sees patients. You have a patient in front of you, and the question you ask is, what is the right thing to do, okay, for this patient in front of me right now with these conditions and this situation? The philosophers among us will, will recognise that that is an example of ethical case-based reasoning informed by science, informed by a lot of other things as well, but it is not, science doesn't tell you what to do. It's about making an ethical judgment about what, the, what is the best course of action. And that is one of the fundamental flawed assumptions. That's why this whole business about ABM is a conscientious, judicious, explicit use of company. Well, no, wait, wait a minute. Let's not start there. Let's start with clinical practices about case-based reasoning. To what extent can epidemiological evidence help that case-based reasoning? Individualized evidence, that's pretty obvious. Because the example of me and Nick Wald arguing about whether I should take a poly pill. I'm not interested in his argument that if everybody took a poly pill, on average, we'd, we'd live longer. I'm interested in what's the benefit for me and the potential harm for me in taking all these things, including aspirin was one I was worried about. Um, 
characterized by expert judgment. And there's a whole science around, mainly from, from the educationists, actually. Um, what is it to make an expert judgment? Now, if you look at the evidence on how experts make judgments, the first thing we do when you're learning something new, just doing a, a course myself on something I know nothing about, which is finance, um, you plod along and you follow the rules absolutely mechanically, and then you get quite good at following the rules. And as you get become, become more of an expert, you know when to break the rules. You know the situations when it's appropriate, when it's actually better to break the rules. That's when, um, for example, I send a patient to an expert in brain surgery. They know when, think, hmm, mm, this person's a bit unusual. I think I will have to do a scan, even though the guideline says don't do a scan type thing. So the problem with an evidence-based guideline is it only takes you to the advanced novice stage of expertise. It doesn't take you into that whole field of rule breaking as part of expert judgment. Sharing decisions with patients has to happen through meaningful conversations with the emphasis on meaningful, not just, um, you know, conversation I had with my mother. Would you like to carry on taking the warfarin? Would you like to go on to the habigatran? Would you like to take aspirin? Would you like to take nothing? Well, it doesn't mean anything to my mother. <laughs> <You know? laughs> when you say, do you know Mrs. So-and-so from church, she has to go twice a month to that clinic where you have to get two buses to have a blood test to check whether or not the blood's being thinned at the right amount. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Oh, now it's meaningful. That's what being a warfarin means, etc. And uh, applies to the community level. All right, that really be a... These are decision-making tools. Are you doing them in your course? Do you do these sorts of things? So converting numbers needed to treat to the sort of smiley face things. Chris Cates, good guy, but nobody uses them. And then these option grids that Glyn Elwin has. Who's, who's seen these before? Yeah? So actually, a tiny minority of you. The idea is that you need to have a meaningful conversation. This is, this is on stable angina. And then you have the two alternatives that the patient might, you know, do you want to go and have a stent fitted or do you want to carry on taking the tablets? And then the questions that the patients might ask, well, hang on a minute, tell me more about the treatment, tell me about the side effects, etc. And they are beginning to get a, a set of these. And I have used them in clinical practice. There's one for sciatica. That's quite a good one to, to look at. But it's just www.optiongrid.org. Um, these, we're beginning to get these decision aids, but we're still, it's in its infancy. It's really in its infancy. Apart from anything else, everyone will dispute everything that you put in those boxes. All right, how do we get really BM? Now, this was the hardest bit of the paper to write because it's all in the future. It's all rather speculative, but it seems to me that this campaign has got to be patient-driven. And we're all patients. You know, I spent most of the last year being a patient um, of one kind or another. And when you're a patient, I tell you why, it feels completely different. But also, I firmly believe, if you look at the big changes, I mean, where did the Cochrane database come from? It came from ECPC? Well, that was driven by women who were a bit fed up with being told they needed an episiotomy in childbirth. And so it, the patient-driven campaign, you know, with, supported by Enchalmers, um, led to ECPC, which then became, which then morphed into, you know, Cochrane. So 
big changes, big changes in, in the way HIV is managed, were, were led by, by the HIV positive community, breast cancer, and actually the conditions where we're still practicing rubbish EBM most of the time are often the ones where the patients are so disempowered they haven't organized and they haven't been able. So I actually believe that we need to bring patients on board and actually follow where patients are already leading. Mental health is another brilliant example. The survivor movement, they call it. Patients you know, who fought against ECT, but they also, they've also fought against all sorts of things. And we should actually be saying, you know, how can we help you? Clinical training. And you don't get me started on OSCEs. Um, we're, we're training our youngsters to be automatons. And my son's a medical student. It just it drives me nuts to see the way they're, they're, they're trying to kill the spark in them. Um, producers of evidence need to take account much more of the audience. It's not just, oh, let me write my paper, let me write up my trial. Who's going to be reading this paper? Is, it, is this what they need to know? Um, publishers, this is something I think we really need. We, you've got now methodological standards. You've got to fill out your consult statement if you want to get a paper published, which is, did tick, I, I, I did design the study right, my randomization was anonymized, was, um, what do they call it, concealment of allocation, all those tick, tick, tick. And if you've done that, methodologically, your, paper, your study was okay, so we'll publish it. I think they should have another readability checklist. Could I show it to my Auntie Maud and my Auntie Maud know what you did? Um, or could I show it to a reasonable GP on the Clapham Omnibus and for him or her to say, yeah, I get that. Well, not many papers will pass that. We could introduce those standards fairly easily. But look at this. Well, Nick will take me up on this. We've got to... Policymakers has got to be a bit more aware of the way evidence is being manipulated, for example, by drug companies who now offer us free statin nurses to kind of, you know, parachute into general practices in order to get more patients on statins. Oh, yeah. Um, we are lucky in this country. I gave this talk. It's a hard life. I gave a similar talk to this in Florence a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, and they got this number six, independent funders. You know, we've got the HTA program, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, we've got the MRC. You know, most of your our trial manager didn't mention the private sector. Well, in Italy, almost all trials are funded by drug companies because they haven't got that sort of government allocation. And that's been ring-fenced, actually. And, you know, so we, we're doing well here. Um, but some countries aren't as lucky. But I'm, this is what I'm interested in. I would, wouldn't I? Because really, I'm a social scientist. The research agenda has got to move beyond epidemiology because some of the questions are not about epidemiology. You can't answer them with epidemiology. Maybe you answer them with philosophy or qualitative research, policy analysis, cognitive psychology, etc., etc. Um, and we're doing... I'm. I'm been commissioned, invited by Biomed Central to edit a series of papers on how EBM might be extended, extending EBM. So those papers at the moment are all being submitted, but we've got one on values-based medicine. Are you leading that one? I think you're leading that. Mike Kelly's leading it. We're, we're writing it. Got another one? Suda? Yeah, we're doing... I think you're not on it, but other people from your unit are on it, on broader qualitative and not just interviewing patients to find out what they feel about this particular illness but 
why do the patients with the worst things wrong with them and the most things wrong with them never come to the doctor at all? So all that stuff about access, um, social determinants, what else are we looking at? Anyway, loads of things. Um, we've got another one on randomised trials. When is the randomised trial not the... I mean, all right, for some things it is, but when is the randomised controlled trial actually a flawed design? Warren Pierce is doing that. It's a beautiful paper. I've, I've seen it. Anyway, lots of stuff that say, look, evidence, epidemiological evidence isn't great, but we need more. All right, so there it was. This is a summary, really. That's our ALT metric. It's, it's gone up since then. So do you know about these ALT metrics? If you've published a paper, you can actually ALT metric it. And normally, if you get above about 30 or 40, you're doing really well. So like, this is like colossal. It's just amazing. We can believe it. Even though the BMJ initially said this is nothing new. Um, and I think it was because what we were doing was capturing the mood of both the EBM movement and the, if you like, the anti-EBM movement. You know, they've, they've sort of coalesced. Um, it's not perfect. OK. OK. We're going to debate this at Evidence, uh, Evidence Live. I can't remember what the motion is, but it's something. Who's coming to Evidence Live? So three things from, from the talk I think we need to all make sure that we do is we need to retrace the paper, we need to make sure that we join Twitter and tweet about it, and we all need to join the campaign for Real EDM. <laughs> Trish, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks.